Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to all our listeners. It's hard to believe we're on our fifth episode. We have many more stories planned for you in season one, but we need your help. And don't worry, helping us is free. We'd love it if you'd take the time to write a review on iTunes and recommend Enigma to a friend who you think would enjoy it. Each episode of Enigma takes countless hours to research and produce. Without you and our sponsors, we couldn't do it. This episode's sponsor is Reed's Jewelers, your family-owned jeweler trusted for generations. You can visit them online at reeds.com. They have an easy-to-use mobile-friendly website, browse diamonds, find jewelry, timepieces, and brands like Forevermark, Tag Heuer, Omega, Pandora, Alex Anani, and much more. Now, on to the show. Hummel Park in Omaha, Nebraska is known as one of the most haunted places in America. Just ask the internet. The 202-acre park in the northern part of the city has seen multiple crimes, including at least seven murders. There are also countless urban legends tied to it. The stories associated with the park range from the strange and unbelievable to the horrific and true. While some of the stories are clearly fact and others fiction, there are still more stories that blur the lines between the two, leaving a park's visitor with a sense of mystery and perhaps fear. Today on Enigma, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a tour of Hummel Park in Omaha, Nebraska. A place that's eerie and undisturbed. Surrounded by mystery near the Missouri River, its name is known across the country. KMTV Action 3 News reporter Megan Matthews investigates Hummel Park and the haunting stories behind it. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. My name is Todd Richardson. Uh, I'm a lifelong Omahan, actually. I'm a professor in the Goodrich Scholarship Program at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. I love my job. My PhD is in English, uh, but my specialization is folklore. I'm the only folklorist on campus, um, so I'm. they didn't have any folklore classes before me. Um, and so a, a couple of uh, semesters ago, I taught a class on ghost, ghost stories and ghost lore, and Hummel Park, of course, came up a ton of times in that class. Growing up in Omaha, I knew that it was like you know a hot spot for rumor and like legend tripping, but I had no idea that people were that fascinated by it. You know, it would come up, and not just in my folklore classes. Like people are just drawn to it um, because of the legends, right? Like it's it's probably the most legendary spots in Omaha. Our journey into Hummel Park begins along John J. Pershing Drive. We follow the road north along the Missouri River, which separates Nebraska from Iowa. We're about 20 minutes north of downtown Omaha, but it feels like we've gone much further. The route is heavily wooded on both sides, making it hard to see anything other than the beat-up black asphalt road in front of us. It is mid-afternoon and the end of fall, chilly outside, but warm in the car. While a blazing display of fall foliage would have greeted us along the roadside a couple of months ago, it is now barren. The trees naked. This is likely the scene that greeted Jeremy Drake in his final moments of life. On October 8, 1992, 
two high schoolers, Jeremy Herman, known as Germ, and Christopher Masters, picked up 15-year-old Jeremy Drake in Germ's truck. Germ's truck stereo had been stolen, and they wanted to find out who was responsible. Germ and Drake had once been good friends and went to the same school. They both shared the same first name and enjoyed listening to similar music. Drake was driven and wanted nothing more than to be a musician. He saved up his money and bought a guitar. He practiced religiously. Germ, on the other hand, was a self-described slacker. He was more interested in playing pinball and getting high. As many high school friends do, the two grew apart over time. Now Germ, Jeremy Herman, was accusing his one-time friend, Jeremy Drake, of stealing his truck stereo. German Masters picked up Drake to question him about the stereo. Masters believed Drake wouldn't cooperate and had brought along a shotgun to use to intimidate him. Along the drive, German Masters began to question Drake about the stereo. He protested. He had no idea what the two boys were talking about. The questioning continued. Tempers rose. At some point, Masters pulled out his shotgun to threaten Drake, demanding to know where the stereo was. Drake claimed he had no information to give them, but they didn't believe him. The truck with the three boys in it turned into Hummel Bark and drove along one of the five roads that cut through the natural area. In a secluded spot, Germ stopped the truck and got out. He needed to think, take a break, or perhaps spend some time alone. He told Masters and Drake he had to go to the bathroom. It was cold. Bowed and leafless tree limbs cast shadows on the dead leaves he walked on. They cracked under his shoes in the otherwise silent night. Germ found a spot away from the road and the truck. We may never know exactly what he thought away by himself in that moment. Perhaps he couldn't believe Drake stole his stereo, or maybe he was upset Drake wouldn't tell him. Maybe he reflected on how far they'd fallen since they were friends. Whatever he was thinking, it was soon interrupted. A shot rang out through the park, forever changing the lives of everyone involved. It wasn't the first murder in Hummel Park, and it wouldn't be the last. The things that come up when discussing Hummel Park, the, the first thing is just generalized ghost stuff. Right, that people, they won't have a specific story. They will just insist that Hummel Park is haunted. We now turn left off John J. Pershing Drive and onto Copper Drive. This is one of two entrances to Hummel Park. We park on the side of the road. Getting out of the car, we're greeted with a rush of cold air. Though the sun is still out, it's in the low 40s. On the right, there's a large sign. It reads, Hummel Park, in gray stone, surrounded by a red border. Upon entering the park and making our way towards South Lookout Trail, we pass a historic marker reading Fort Lisa, built near this site in 1807 by Manuel Lisa, trader and Indian commissioner, through whose influence the Omaha, Pawnee, Ponca, Oto, and Sioux tribes remained loyal to the United States during the War of 1812. Hummel Park was established in 1930. 200 acres of land were donated to the city of Omaha, which named the new park after the longtime superintendent of Omaha's Parks and Recreation Department, Joseph B. Hummel. 
Depending on who you ask, the dark history of Hummel Park may have begun long before Western settlers gave it a name. Some claim the site was a Native American burial ground, an urban legend refuted by park authorities. Another legend, harder to disprove, tells of Lorinda Kladinoff and her husband Jacob. They were said to be one of the first Western settlers in the area. In the trees and hills north of Omaha, they built a small, homey cabin. They were from Germany and were starting a new life in a new country. Lorinda found herself more and more in love with her new life, and less in love with Jacob. She eventually met a man whose name is lost to history. They fell madly for each other. Lorinda began spending more time with the man, often leaving Jacob alone. Eventually, the legend says that Lorinda and her lover murdered Jacob and fled from the area, disappearing from history. While the legitimate sources backing up this story are few and unverified by historical records, it is one of the park's many legends. People claim to have seen the ghost of Jacob moving among the trees, searching for the life he had so been looking forward to. This legend and others in the park have attracted the attention of paranormal investigators from across the country. While usually considered a fringe group practicing a pseudoscience, those involved in paranormal research are constantly trying to come up with new ways to validate their findings scientifically. Paranormal investigations of Hummel Park have resulted in many photographs of spirit orbs around certain hills in the park. Believers claim these orbs are the evidence of spiritual energy. Skeptics claim that all they see in the photographs are specks of dust. Paranormal investigators also claim to have obtained various EVPs in Hummel Park. EVPs, or electronic voice phenomenon, are audio recordings paranormal investigators take. When they go back through the file after the investigation, they listen to the amplified white noise in between waveforms of actual sound. They claim that in this white noise, you can hear the voice of ghosts. Skeptics claim EVPs are nothing more than hoaxes, equipment artifacts, and aphophenia, which is the assigning of patterns to otherwise unrelated information. Paranormal investigators claim it is proof of the paranormal. And they have EVP recordings from Hummel Park of a certain ghost crying out into the night, don't leave me, and where is Lorinda? From the historical marker, we walk the few hundred feet back to the car and get in. It's still warm. We take a left and we're back on John J. Pershing Drive, heading north again. We are going to the other entrance, the main entrance, which is the best access point for many of the nature trails that crisscross the park. Here, the previously flat land on our left becomes more steep. The trees give way to a barren area of sharp cliffs and steep drop-offs. This slope is known as Devil's Slide. High schoolers claim multiple people have gone to this hillside in their lowest emotional depths to take their own lives. They also claim the site is a dumping ground for bodies. While we didn't find any evidence for the suicides, we did find multiple stories of the park being used to dump bodies. But more on that tragic part of the park's history later on in the tour. The sun is setting. The shadows from the trees grow longer. The days are shorter this time of year. 
We're now approaching the park's main entrance along River Road. In the fall, the park is a fun community event known as Harvest Fun Days. It's part of the Omaha Parks and Recreation Department's attempt to change how the park is seen in the community. During Harvest Fun Days, parents can bring their kids to make fall crafts, play games, explore the trails on guided hikes, and go through the pumpkin patch. Pumpkins are $2. There's a long tradition of Harvest Days and Fall Festivals in Hummel Park. On October 11, 1947, Hummel Park was filled with students from the University of Nebraska, celebrating fall's arrival with a similar festival. One student, Freddie Freeland, got on a hayride with about 30 other students. The slow-moving ride ambled through the fall foliage of the park. The scene was a peaceful one, until a vehicle careened around the corner, traveling over 60 miles an hour in the opposite direction on the wrong side of the road. The speed limit on that road was 35. The driver, Harry Schulter, was intoxicated. There was nothing the hayride driver could do. Schulter's vehicle crashed into the hayride, throwing students from the wagon. One by one, they got to their feet, mostly shaken and injured but alive. One person didn't get up. Freddie Freeland. They found him lying more than 30 feet from the back of the wagon. He died shortly after the accident. Leaving River Road and passing through the main entrance of the park, there's a sign with the park's hours. While all other parks in Omaha are open from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. year-round, Hummel Park is the lone exception. It is open 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. May through September, and in the fall and winter, the park closes at 6 p.m. Many believe this is to discourage high schoolers from late-night excursions into the park. Yet there are many stories that make such a change in public perception difficult. On December 10, 1998, 18-year-old Scott Addison went to Hummel Park. Scott was known as a good kid. He was on the high school football team. He just earned his Eagle Scout for helping homeless children in the area and was known to be able to make friends with anyone. In this case, that trait proved deadly. He was supposed to meet two high school dropouts he'd recently befriended in the park. The two told Scott they had found a buyer for an old car stereo he was trying to sell. He didn't need it anymore, and he could use the extra money. When Scott arrived, the two jumped him. One beat the Eagle Scout viciously with a length of pipe. The other used a knife, stabbing Scott repeatedly. Scott fought back as best he could, but was overwhelmed by his attackers. Eventually, he collapsed to the ground. When the attackers were sure he was dead, they ran off into the night. Scott wasn't dead. He rose and, clinging to life, crawled to a nearby parked car. Feeling himself losing consciousness, he wrote the names of his attackers in his own blood on the outside of the vehicle. He collapsed, exhausted, certain he was going to die. Then he saw a house on the outskirts of the park, with a light on inside. Someone was home, awake. Scott summoned every ounce of strength he had left and started off towards the house. Incredibly, Scott survived his ordeal in Hummel Park that night. Past the main entrance, we get out of the car. The temperature is dropping. 
The sun is dipping below the horizon, even though it's only half past four. We take the first trail on our left called Big Bluffs Trail. This is a hike along a hilltop bridge, and from the lookout, we can see more of the park and the surrounding Nebraska landscape. Rolling hills rise in the distance with only a few roads cutting through the natural scene. Hummel Park wasn't always known as one of the most haunted places in America. In the 1950s, the park played host to various summer camps. The beautiful natural area filled with the laughter of children escaping their parents to explore the world around them and make new friends. July 4th was always a big holiday for Hummel Park, featuring elaborate firework shows and drawing tourists from far and wide. In the winter, if there was enough snow, visitors would bring their skis and get a few runs in amongst the hills and trees that we can see from Big Bluff's lookout point. From Big Bluff's trail, we turn west and begin traveling along Lion's Den Cutoff. From our lookout point, it's only about a tenth of a mile along Lion's Den Cutoff Trail to a parking lot. Uh, the next thing that I always hear that always comes up when discussing Hummel Park is the morphing staircase, right? That, that if you count the number of steps going up and then count them again going down, that you will come up with different numbers, and which people are incredibly intrigued by. And students tell me all the time, like, it's true, I get it. Um, that being said, like, morphing staircases exist all over America, all over the world, right? Like, there's all kinds of spots that supposedly have morphing staircases. On the south side of this parking lot is one of the most famous sites in Hummel Park, the Morphing Stairs. For all the legends about this staircase, it doesn't seem too impressive. It was supposedly built during the Great Depression and has had little, if any, upkeep since then. The stone steps are dilapidated and falling apart. Legend has it that the stairs change as you climb them. The number you count up is never the same as the number you count going down. For that reason, some consider it the devil's staircase, one that curses those who use it. But more than likely, it's just hard to keep count because of the decrepit state of the stairs. We start up the staircase, which rises about 120 feet over the course of just less than a tenth of a mile. We count 185 steps, this time anyway. Numbers vary. At the top of the staircase is a playground and picnic area. Some of the playgrounds were removed from Hummel Park in 2009, as it went through many changes in the ongoing attempts to reinvent the park. Of the many legends surrounding the park, the most disturbing focus on these picnic pavilions and play areas. The 1990s saw the height of the satanic panic. It was a time when parents believed their children were being corrupted by heavy metal music promoting Satan worship and human sacrifice. After the tragedy of Columbine in 1999, many people believed their worst fears were confirmed. Those shooters often dressed in black and listened to Marilyn Manson and other similar music. It was also during this time that many people's lives across the country were ruined by false accusation of terrible crimes, especially against children. Still others got away with murder, framing outcast adolescents for their crimes. Today, this period is remembered as the modern version of the Salem Witch Trials. During this period in history, parents warned their children against going to the park at night. They spoke of pentagrams and painted pavilions, satanic ceremonies carried out by cloaked acolytes, and the sacrifice of animals and even small children. 
high schoolers would sneak into the park at night for a scare or to paint some of the unsettling graffiti. Another legend claims that a family of albinos lived in the wooded areas of Hummel Park and would murder and rob unsuspecting hikers. Probably the just most unusual or uh, legend that I've heard about Hummel Park is uh, that there's an albino farm uh, on Hummel Park. The idea being that if you go there at night, there's a family of albinos who will be farming at night because they can't farm in the daytime because they would be burned by the sun. Right? And so this is a legend that is attributed to Hummel Park and, and frequently legend tripping, right? which is this idea that it's a rite of passage that adolescents the world over go through, like American adolescence legend trip as a kind of rite of passage where you share stories about a place and then a group of friends will go there and experience the place firsthand, right? Um, and Hummel Park is a spot for legend tripping for Omaha. And they will go and they will look for the albino farmers. Uh, that's, that's one of the more unique stories that I've heard about there. And then probably the one that I'm most interested in as a folklorist, the bending trees, the weeping trees of Hummel Park, that there are the, there's this row of trees where all of the, the, the crown of all the trees bend over uh, the path. And the legend is all of those trees have been bent by lynchings, right? That there was a, a series of lynchings in Omaha at some undefined time, and that Hummel Park was the site of those lynchings. And I find that incredibly interesting as a folklorist. The kind of racial anxiety that is, that is um, manifested or expressed through those stories. Omaha has a very complicated and a very kind of shameful racial history. And the fact that these legends were attributed to Hummel Park when there were, there were lynchings in Omaha, but not on that kind of scale and certainly not in Hummel Park. But the fact of the matter is people express that kind of racial anxiety or a subtle awareness or an unspoken awareness of Omaha's complicated racial past uh, through stories, through the legends of Hummel Park. And I think this is also intimately connected to Hummel Park's location in North Omaha, uh, because Omaha is a deeply, shamefully segregated city through history, uh, historical circumstances and redlining and, you know, implicit biases throughout the city, like North Omaha is Black Omaha, and South Omaha is Latino Omaha, and West Omaha is White Omaha is the shorthand for it. And, you know, Omaha, they associate North Omaha with crime, and so by extension they're going to associate Hummel Park with crime. And so I think that there's, there's a racialized text to that, a subtext to that as well. I think it's race. I think race is underneath a lot of those stories. From the playground and picnic area, we turn north and hike along Uptop Trail. We follow it north for about one-fifth of a mile. The sun has left us entirely now. We are surrounded by darkness. Flashlights guide us. Without daylight, it is easy to see why the park attracts thrill-seekers and paranormal investigators. A man who would only later identify himself to the press as Joe was one such investigator. He'd heard the legends of Hummel Park and decided to go into the wooded trails on May 11, 2006 in search of a first-hand paranormal experience. He didn't find anything paranormal. What he did find was much worse than a ghost, and real. 
A short ways from the trail, he noticed a bright white object among the sprouting undergrowth. At first, he thought it was a piece of garbage, yet he decided to investigate it. As he got closer, he realized he was seeing some sort of skeletal remain. It was a skull. A human skull. It was in fragments, as if smashed, and there was a hole through it. The skull was small, far too small to be from an adult. This empty seat doesn't mean a young girl's presence isn't being felt. Her spirit is still around us today. I can feel it. That feeling is Amber Harris. This is video of the day she last stepped off her bus. When she walked off that bus, her feet landed in the same park her mother stands in now. Five months earlier, on the afternoon of November 29th, 2005, 12-year-old Amber Lee Harris was getting off the bus. School was over for the day, and she was on her way back home. Her bus stop was near Hummel Park. The seventh grader, described as artsy, creative, and spunky, got her belongings together, said goodbye to her friends and the driver, and hopped off. She started towards her house, as she had done every school day before. But on that day, she would never make it to her front door. 53-year-old Roy Ellis had also been near Hummel Park that afternoon. He had a criminal past and had previously been found guilty of robbery, possession of a weapon, drug dealing, evidence tampering, and multiple counts of sexual assault. He'd spent all but five years of his adult life incarcerated. When Amber got off the bus, Ellis was there. He followed her. He abducted her, assaulted her, smashed her skull, and buried her in a shallow grave in Hummel Park. He did not escape justice. Investigators began to suspect Ellis, who was back in prison for different reasons, when they heard of a discussion he had with another inmate and with a girlfriend over the phone. This led to physical evidence tying Ellis to the murder. On February 7, 2009, Roy Ellis was found guilty and sentenced to death. Joe was understandably shaken from his discovery, but took some comfort in the knowledge that it brought Amber's family some sense of closure. They finally knew what had happened to their daughter and were able to bury her. Just a matter of seconds, that's all it took to change one family's life, but there is a lasting memory. Even 10 years later, you see the symbols on these pamphlets and flyers from that group. John Mallory, that's Amber Harris's hand, yet another lasting memory of her life. Amber and Jeremy Drake were not the only people to be found dead in Hummel Park. Other murder victims have been found in or near the park, including a radio repairman in 1933 and a sex worker in 1983 murdered by fellow sex workers. There have also been multiple verified accounts of sexual assault dating back to 1956. It's almost 6 p.m. Hummel Park will be closed soon. As we head down the uptop trail, we approach the new nature center. It provides a variety of activities and day camps for children. It's all part of a massive effort to change the image of Hummel Park from one of the most haunted places in America into a safe space where people can enjoy the outdoors. If you research Hummel Park, you'll notice that the Wikipedia page and the City of Omaha website make no mention of any of the dark stories, real or imagined, that we've shared today. Perhaps this is for the best. But will these measures be enough to change how the community of Omaha and the rest of the country sees Hummel Park? It's time for us to leave now. 
From the Nature Center, we continue along Hummel Road towards the park's exit. But the story of the park doesn't end. Just as Germ's story didn't end when Christopher Masters murdered his childhood friend Jeremy Drake. In fact, it was only the beginning. At the trial, Masters, who had pulled the trigger, was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Jeremy Herman, Germ, was convicted of kidnapping and given the same sentence, no chance for parole. Germ became inmate 45019. On the day of Germ's sentencing, Drake's mother, Mona Schultman, did something many in her situation would never be able to do. She forgave Germ. However, it took Germ much longer to come to terms with what had happened. At first, he didn't take any responsibility. In prison, he managed to maintain his drug habit. In fact, his marijuana usage increased. Now more than ever, he needed an escape from reality. In 1997, Germ got caught using in prison and was sentenced to solitary confinement for a year. It was during this time he began corresponding with Jeremy Drake's mother. She responded to his letters, insisting she really had forgiven him. They began to confide in one another. He told her he started attending Bible study in prison. He stopped using drugs. Shultman believed that Germ, Jeremy Herman, was a changed man. She began pushing for a change to the law. Herman was 37. He had spent more than half his life, 17 years, in prison. Then, a 2010 U.S. Supreme Court ruling stated that minors couldn't be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole if they hadn't been convicted of killing anybody. Herman was given a second chance. I mean, urban folklore is fluid, and insofar as all folklore is fluid, right? It's unfixed. And it, the tale you hear depends on the teller. Can we change as individuals? Can a place and the way it is perceived by the society that created it truly change? If it's possible, it's definitely not easy. Re-entering society isn't easy either. When Herman was finally released from prison, he didn't have a lot going for him. He had no high school diploma, no job history, no skills. It was a struggle to make ends meet. He worked various jobs where he could find them. He was a day laborer, a banquet server, a bartender, demolition worker. Eventually, he found he enjoyed sandblasting and began an apprenticeship, spending more than 12 hours a day focusing on his new craft, blasting away the grime and filth of places, making them clean and new again. He also met someone playing pool one night and they began dating. Germ, the high school slacker, is gone, a relic of the past. As Jeremy Herman builds his new life, he is living proof that though it takes work, People can change. But what if Hummel Park? At 
As we drive south and away from the park, back down John J. Pershing Drive towards Omaha, our headlights show us the way. In the distance, we can see houses in the city of Omaha about 10 miles ahead. Perhaps all the work and money the Parks and Recreation Department is putting into changing Hummel Park will create a new Hummel Park. Perhaps this new Hummel Park can have the same hours of Omaha's other parks, and the haunting urban legends and true crime stories will fade into history. Maybe, hopefully, the tragic death of 12-year-old Amberly Harris will be the final murder associated with the park. It has been 12 years now. A lot has changed. It may be that as time goes on, we will in fact be able to make new choices about the identity of the park, how it is defined and perceived. But then again, the park might choose for itself. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Enigma and joining us on our tour of Hummel Park. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more information on Hummel Park, you can check out our website, thisisenigma.com. We've got photos from the park, pictures of the morphing stairs, and a map of the route we took you on a tour of today. You can also find links to our sources there. If you'd like to hear more Enigma, then we need your help. Enigma is now on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please subscribe as our subscriber count attracts more listeners. We'd also love it if you'd recommend Enigma to a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. Another way to help is to rate us and write a review on iTunes. If you do, we'll give you a call out in future episodes thanking you for your support. We've recently had new reviews from Bunko777, Sweet JD, Ben the Hen, and Pirate Pony. Thanks so much to everyone who has taken time to rate and review us on iTunes. It means a lot. This episode of Enigma was written and produced by Alex Holscher, researched by Patrick Basquill, edited by Rachel Castro and Max Davis, original artwork by Chris Vickery. Enigma is produced in Cape Fear, North Carolina. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. Enigma.